was devastating. You know, I felt devastated. I couldn't even think. Andre Taylor still feels the pain of his brother Shay's shooting death by Seattle police officers. After countless viewings of the police dash cam video, he still questions how and why it happened. And the amount of time from hearing what was going on, not just seeing, but from hearing them saying, put your hands up and get down, and seeing him actually do that, within a matter of six and seven seconds, then they, they shot and, and murdered him. The investigation of how Seattle police officers handled Shay Taylor's shooting continues. Meantime, Andre Taylor has taken up another cause, the passage of a statewide measure aimed at making it easier to prosecute police in questionable deadly shootings. This is not an anti-police legislation. This is a pro-community. This is not against the police. Ahead, Andre Taylor explains why he and others want to use the legislative system to address deadly police shootings. Plus, he speaks out about his brother Shay and the Seattle police shooting that took his life. I'm Enrique Cerna, and this is Conversations. Andre Taylor, welcome. Good to have you Thank here. you. Thanks for having me. Where were you when you heard that your brother had been shot and killed by Seattle police? Uh, I was in Los Angeles at the time. Mm-hmm. Did you just get a phone call from family saying there's been an incident? Yeah, my um, my stepmom called me, Shay's mother, and uh, she seemed kind of frantic and saying that she had some information that uh, Shay might have been involved in some type of shooting. Yeah. How long did it take before you found out what had happened? Well, I told her, let's not jump to any conclusions before we have some clarity. And uh, the process of, of that clarity took maybe like two hours before we really understood what had happened. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for you to then, you were in Los Angeles at mm-hmm. the time, to say, I got to get up to Seattle? Oh, that wasn't very difficult at all. <laughs> the next thing, smoking. So it was in the evening time that I found out. So I was on the early flight the next day, 22nd of February. The Seattle police uh, fairly quickly released videotape of the incident. Mm-hmm. You saw that. Yes. What did you think? Uh, wasn't what I thought. Is how I felt. Uh, it was devastating. You know, I felt devastated. I couldn't even think. You know, you see something like that, some, your little brother, you know, your little brother's almost equivalent to a son almost, you know, because you take care of him when he's younger and you, you stick up for him, you know. And um, so seeing how that uh, that transpired, it was just devastating to me, you know. And also recognizing what's going on around the country, but knowing that, wow, this has happened to our family. You know, you could feel it around the country because it's your people, but then it becomes that much more closer when it becomes your little brother. So I was devastated. When you saw the videotape, how did you think that the police had acted or reacted in that whole situation? Well, um, because there were so many conflicting reports on why the action happened by the Seattle police, uh, I was... I was concerned that they were in, uh, uh, they had like military uniforms on, like, 
and they had assault rifles. And I just, in the amount of time from hearing what was going on, not just seeing, but from hearing them saying, put your hands up and get down and seeing him actually do that within a matter of six and seven seconds, then they, they shot and, and murdered him, you know. So I, I thought that that was um, unjust. Let me give a little more context to Most definitely. that situation. Uh, Seattle police say that they were conducting surveillance on a north Seattle home of a suspected drug dealer. They say that Shea was uh, in the area that had been carrying a handgun mm-hmm. and a holster. He was a felon. He'd been in prison before and was uh, subject for immediate arrest for being a felon in possession of a gun. Uh, in the encounter with Shea, they say that they identified themselves and they told Shay to get on the ground. But officers believed that he was going for his gun right. after they had told him that. And then they opened fire mm-hmm. and they shot and he died. Yes. That was what they said. Well, that's a narrative that has been said around the country. I mean, um, later on we found out that the gun that, they, that he was alleged to have had was actually traced back to a sheriff deputy. And, um, you know, that's a smoking gun to me, you know. Uh, I know my brother, and <clears throat> my brother had a checkered pass. I had a checkered pass, and I had to overcome it. But him having to have done 20 years, over 20 years in prison, coming out uh, with his mind conditioned in that type of setting and then having to come into the world and reprogram yourself. One thing I know that he was at the time, programmed to comply. After doing 22 years in prison, you're programmed to comply. And and he wanted to do some living. I know he wasn't suicidal, so I knew that he wouldn't have a gun. And uh, that's one of the problems is that when incidents happen like this around the country, the police are able to create a narrative, you know, before uh, the, their investigation uh, begins. And so what happens is when that narrative is created, then and it's given to the media and they continue to play it and loop it over and over again, then the families of, of the victim have to dig out of that narrative to then say, well, wait a minute, he was a father, he was a brother, you know, and regardless of what he did in his past, whatever debt he paid, he paid it, you know, and whatever his you know mistakes were, that's still not a right to kill him. If you do think that he was, as you have said and stated, police, uh, selling drugs, arrest him and let him be uh, set before a jury of his peers and let them decide what his fate would be. But um, if you then believe that if an individual have committed some type of crime, then it is worthy of death. There's no need for a judicial system if that's the case. So are, are you saying that you have a tough time believing that he had a gun? They, they said he had a holster and that the gun was in the holster. Um, I know he didn't have a gun, and um, we had to get the information through a uh, digging through. Um, well, actually, the Seattle Times is the one that came up with the information saying that this particular gun that they said my brother had was traced back to a sheriff deputy. Now, how does that happen? What is a sheriff deputy's gun doing with my little brother? So to me, that is an indication that someone planted something there. And um, that's I guess we're going we'll deal with that as you know the things continue on right it's there's investigation yet going on the officers involved have made statements 
Um, there's going to be more investigation and most likely an inquest into all of this. And, yes. Uh, so that it's going to take some time. It's a process. Before, yeah, a process, a process. Mm-hmm. In the wake of all of this, um, I know that you had spoken out on behalf of the family, but y- you moved here. Yes. You changed your life. You left uh, L.A. You have come here because this has become uh, your focus, and you have become involved uh, in a statewide initiative effort. Yes. Tell me about that initiative, how you got involved in that, what what you are trying to do. Well, this initiative was actually a bill called 2907. Uh, last year, uh, Senator Hazagawa and uh, a lot of people that were involved in trying to make this a law last year. Actually, this bill was killed in safety committee last year by the powerful police union. So uh, a, Lisa, a lady named Lisa Hayes, who was in some of those meetings last year, decided that she would do something different. She would simplify that bill into an initiative, which is called a legislative initiative. And uh, we came up with uh, something simpler that challenges the state law in Washington, which Amnesty International says is the worst in the country. So uh, this legislative initiative is the first of its kind. It's historical because it's never happened before, where actually we have the opportunity, the people, to change a law. There's a two-pronged just how, how it happens. We raise 250,000 voter registered signatures. We present that to the legislator. It bypasses the committee that it was defeated in last year. It goes right to the legislator. If the legislators choose not to then pass the law, they have the power to. But if they choose not, it goes to ballot. So we have two opportunities of getting this law challenged and changed, really. So once um, some attorney friends of mine uh, explained to me the nature of the law in Washington state and understanding that, listen, um, this law was created in 1986. It was supposed to be an improvement from the prior law. The prior law said that a police officer can shoot uh, an alleged suspect in the back. And this was supposed to be an improvement. But when they put the malice clause in the law, which means that in the state of Washington, in order for a police officer to be brought up on charges, we have to prove that that police officer had malice. Malice is an impossible thing to prove because it's a state of mind. No malicious intent. Yeah. All right. We can't prove malice. And what bears witness to that is from 2005 to 2015, 213 people have been killed by officers in Washington and not one officer convicted of a crime because of that malice statue in the law. And we are challenging that malice statue and saying that there's no one above the law and we need to have accountability, not only it's America's citizens, but America's police force as well. So it would change the current law. Yes. To to take out malice. Malice. Yeah. And with a good faith intent, because they're called state of mind language. It's a state of mind language. We're trying to get away from what is in a person's mind so that we can bring into play the circumstances of what happened. Right now, you can't bring the circumstances into play because still we have to prove that the officer had malice. You can't do it. So in this process of, of doing this, I know that you have been out in the community, yes, talking to folks, telling them about that. 
What's been the reaction you've gotten in the African-American community, which is very suspect of the system? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, we give uh, my nonprofit is called Not This Time. We give Wednesday night meetings. Every Wednesday night, we give community meetings where um, the U.S. senator have been there. A U.S. congressman, Adam Smith, has been there. We have councilwoman Gonzalez, uh, uh, Lorena Gonzalez, have been there. Uh, uh, Sawant, Kashama Sawant. We have what I try to do is create an atmosphere, a safe place, so that politicians come and explain their roles to the community. And what I've tried to convey to the community and to the, po- and to the police force at large is that this is not an anti-police legislation. This is a pro-community. This is not against the police. And I believe that they believe what I was saying because the Seattle Police Department endorsed this initiative. Also, the mayor has endorsed this initiative, and a plethora of politicians as well have endorsed this initiative. And You've I, talked to Chief O'Toole about it. Chief O'Toole. Uh, we all met Chief O'Toole, myself, and about eight officers. Uh, uh, U.S. Congressman Adam Smith was at Mount Zion Baptist Church several Sundays ago uh, after uh, the tough week that we as a country you know, went through with the murders of the police and the murder of the two black men. And uh, we just believe as a unit it is time to then show some solidarity to try to temper this, the temperature in the nation. Is, is It could go either way. And I think that leadership demanded us to come together and try to bridge an understanding. And so that's what I do. So we've been received very, very well because I don't believe. Well, let me say it like this. I believe in marching and I do believe in rallying because I've done a lot of that. But I know people could march and rally for a long time. So in the black community, it's like a boxer. If you swing up to hit your opponent and you miss You've exhorted more energy missing than if you did if you hit your opponent. So people have marched and missed. People have rallied and missed, and they are frustrated, and they are just done with the process. So all I'm, da- all I'm doing is trying to educate the public and say, listen, there is a means and there is a way. This is the way we need to legislatively challenge these laws that's on the books. And it's kind of hard trying to convey that because it's kind of wonkish. It's kind of, you know, but you have to do it. Right. Because that's the process. That's where the real fight is. And that's what I do every day. But what do you say to people in the community that say, you know, Andre, this is part of the system. I don't, we weren't, you know, I don't know that we can make any difference here. I say that there's a room for everybody to have their own opinion. But the onus is on me. I have to take a leadership position and a role. And sometimes you have to show through the work what you're saying. You could talk, 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 talk. But I also always believe that the work will speak better than you, greater than you, louder than you. So I'm interested in making sure that the work is presented before the people so then they can believe the work. That's what I say to them. And this initiative uh, actually is aimed for 2017. Yes, yes. We have until the end of this year to uh, uh, rally up the 250,000 votes. Uh, we've had about a month. And I think we have around just with volunteer, with no paid volunteers yet, just with volunteers, about 45,000 thus far. And that is almost unheard of for initiatives like this. Police Guild in Seattle, have you mm-hmm. talked to them about this? Well, you know, there's a new um, president, Stucky, I believe his name is, is coming on board. And so we have uh, talked with him. Well, we've had some people that come to my uh, Not This Time meetings that I've talked to him about coming to not this time, because like, like I said, 
not this time as a safe place. And and he said he's going to come. So I think that him coming, uh, it shows a different temperament, maybe. It shows that it's really not, because you know what happens is, is people begin to posture. People are set in what they believe, and I understand that. But when cops and, and African Americans and Latinos and natives continue to get killed at such an alarming rate, leadership has to take precedence. And I think that's what we're calling for in this nation, leadership. Not how I feel, not how you feel. My brother was just killed five months ago, yet I'm willing to cross over and talk to police and talk to the chief and say, listen, we have to do something for our city, for our state, and for our nation. That's leadership. And they have to be willing to do the same thing. Not this time. That's right. Tell me about that. Well, I was given a rally one time. It organically came. And uh, I was speaking about... Uh, the lack of justice that have happened in our country and in, in the city as well. And I said, you know, it has happened and and something sprew out of me. And I said, but not this time. And when it came, it resonated with the with the people that were there marching and rallying with me. And I yelled it again, not this time. And the crowd said, not this time. And that's how it was created from that real, genuine, pure place. Not this time. Whatever happened yesterday, the bully might have beat us seven times. They might have beat us the whole year in school all three or six months. And sometimes a young guy who's been bullied will wake up in the morning and he'll say, not this time. And he'll do something about it. That's what that represents. A cry of the under uh, appreciated and the guy that's been bullied. And he's saying, this time I'm going to give it everything I got more than any other time before. And I'm going to do something about it. Talking with Andre Taylor, he is the brother of Shea Taylor, who was shot and killed by Seattle police in February. Andre is now involved in an initiative campaign, statewide initiative campaign, that would uh, make it less difficult to prosecute police officers in Washington state. Uh, You've changed your life coming here. Well, I was um, already involved in... uh, community activities uh, in, in, in Los Angeles. You know, I lectured at universities. I uh, mentored, life coached, spoke on TV programs, TBN. Uh, I've been to prisons and spoke. I've taught at treatment centers. So I was well positioned to then say all of that that I've learned through the several years that I had to overcome my own checkered past, everything that I've learned I will now be able to dedicate that to this cause because this cause is calling upon me. And I moved up here. When I came February 22nd, I never left, and I don't intend to leave. And I brought my wife, who's really my backbone. We've been together, married over 18 years, and my mother-in-law and my son. And and, uh, and we made that decision and that commitment to the city to make a change, and that's what we're going to do. Sometimes people need to see your sacrifice first to believe that you really mean what you say. When you say you had a checkered past, what does that mean? Well, um, I um, had to overcome. You know, my I, I come from a family, a father and a mother that were that were hustlers. They were in the streets, you know, and I was born into that environment. And, you know, I was out there in the streets myself trying to hustle, trying to make money, trying to do whatever I could at the time. And so what made me become a life coach was that I had to life coach myself up out of that condition. You know, I went to federal prison. And I had to overcome that. And when I got out of federal prison, um, I had some universities uh, getting in contact with me to come speak. And uh, 
and that was an opportunity for me to then share my life and to share um, with young people some of the pitfalls. Even though I, bo- I, was, I was raised in it, born in it, I still wanted to share my experiences from the inside out, from a child growing up in it, how he felt, how I felt about my mom and my dad being hustling. You know, and my father was probably my greatest inspiration because he then got himself out a long time ago and wrote the all he wrote the all American novel called The Midman and got four out of five stars in the New York Times and that was inspiration to let me know that I can also change my life. She was your little brother. Yes. Do you always want to protect him? Always. Even though when we got a little older he got bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> and I may have switched a little bit. <laughs> Do you feel like you you miss something in not being able to keep him out of out of the life? Well, the problem about being in the streets, uh, if your parents are in the streets, is that they might travel different places, and so we weren't together all the time because we shared the same father but different mothers. So a lot of that time he spent with his mom, and I was with my dad most of the time. I wasn't really with my mom; I was with my dad. And so I think what was missed a lot, uh, what I see a lot in our communities is a lack of headship, the lack of leadership from a father. And I think that maybe if he would have had more of that, not that he was a bad person, he had his challenges, I had mine. I just think that, I think that uh, my father living a life and me seeing him overcome his worst self to become his better self and me witnessing with my own eyes impacted me maybe a little different than it could have him because he wasn't there. He saw it from afar off. And I just think that that life that he grew up in, it got the best of him and it gets the best of a lot of us. These are challenging times in this country. Yes. We uh, have some widening racial divisions here in our, uh, Relationships, particularly in communities of color with uh, police, there's a big struggle there. Uh, What do you think needs to happen to try to bridge the gap? Well, you know, I keep mentioning leadership. and What what does that look like? I mean, what does that look like right now? The country has a a horrible history that it struggles with. I think it's going to take a a lot of courageous men and women to face some of those things. I think we, I think we try to go over it, you know, try to not try to put it in the back because, you know, there's trauma on both ends of the spectrum. There's trauma from the victim and it's it's trauma from the victimizer. There's trauma. There's trauma from America, from what it did to slaves. And I think that unless at some point there is some type of, uh, reconciliation and and what you're going to do about that. I mean, if you think about Japan and Korea, Japan then gave like $20 million for sex slavery that they had. And you think about when other countries have damaged anyone in any way, there's always been an accountability. There's been no accountability for what happened to African-Americans in this country. And, uh, Somebody's going to have to be real strong and courageous to look the country in the face and say, you know, we have to do something about this. We're going to have to do something about this. This initiative, I-873, are you concerned at all that it could 
widen any split there is already? Well, considering that the Seattle Police Department has endorsed it, (laughs) which is phenomenal within itself, they're endorsing saying that we do need some accountability. And if the police, uh, Seattle Police Department, which numbers 12, I believe 1,200 of them, more than all the police departments together in the state of Washington, if they themselves have endorsed this, I think that that shows you that uh, people want to come together and people want to do something. I think that Washington has an opportunity to lead. I think if it's been called upon us, this wasn't given to New York. It wasn't given to California. It wasn't given to Chicago. It was placed right dab in the hand of Washington State. We're either going to lead like we led with the $15 an hour in Seattle. We're going to lead or we're going to pass the buck and then pay for it later. I think we have the genius within us in Washington State. I was born here. I went to school here, back and forth from L.A. to here. We have the genius and we have the activism and we have the fairness in this state to make something happen. And I think we should. Is this effort helping you deal with what happened with your brother? I haven't had an opportunity to grieve yet because, like I said in the beginning, when you're dealing with a system that's been in place, you're dealing with a narrative fight. And so my consolation will be is when we can have some things in place that is accountable, that makes all people accountable, that I could shade, that I could save a thousand shades from happening, maybe a million shades from happening over a period of time. Uh, that's, yeah, that's my consolation. I think that that didn't make me feel good. Andre Taylor, he's the brother of Shea Taylor, who was shot and killed by Seattle police in February. Andre is now involved in a statewide initiative campaign effort. Uh, The initiative is called I-873. It would uh, make it uh, less difficult to prosecute police officers in Washington state. And uh, the campaign goes on. They have until the end of this year to try to raise the signatures. Yeah, December 30th. All right. Audrey Taylor, thank you for your time. I appreciate you. And if anybody would like to have more information, they can go to notthistime.global and we have all the information there for them. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you for having me.